I'm Jackson Wynn. I am an unscripted executive producer, mainly in sports television and documentary. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Wynn. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of. When you were growing up, did you have any sports dreams? Did you uh, participate in a lot of sports activities? I, I started playing football uh, at, at eight years old. So I was fortunate uh, enough to get introduced to the sport of football at a young age. My, my older brother played, and uh, that kind of defined me at a very early age, all the way through high school and even a little bit into college. So football was probably uh, the, the main sport that I played. I played baseball a little bit, basketball, but uh, you know, back in my day, you you weren't allowed to do too many dual sports uh and, and and you couldn't do you know more than one sport at the high school that i was at so football was kind of uh my backbone growing up which uh where did you grow up so i grew up in the san fernando valley i went to a high school uh, in the northwest corner of los angeles called chatsworth high school uh go chancers <laughs> there's not a lot of asian kids growing up in that neighborhood right you know, there were, I mean, but there weren't a lot of Asian athletes, you know, I, I, I was probably one of maybe two or three Asian football players on my team. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I had a, I had a handful of Asian friends, but uh, most of them probably gave up sports by the time they got into high school. What, what do you think that is? Why do you think Asian kids didn't play a lot of sports in our time growing up? Yeah, it's a great question, Kenneth. I mean, it, you know, for me, just looking at it from my point of view, um, uh, a Vietnamese American, you know, anybody who is Vietnamese American growing up in my generation, you know, their parents kind of weren't really into sports. My, my family, you know, I, I, I kind of went through a divorce with my family. And so my mom was more Americanized and just kind of wanted to get as much help as she could raising the kids, the two boys. And so football was a great kind of like, place to drop us off and, and, and get, uh, you know, coaching and, and get, uh, you know, good adult uh, supervision. Um, my other friends, you know, I'm not going to lie, you know, the, and, it, and it pains me to kind of talk about it a little bit, but a lot of, some of them got into like, you know, gang banging, you know, I, I think it has a lot to do with kind of like that big wave of uh, Southeast Asian Americans coming after the war, including uh, a lot of Vietnamese people that just looked for a place to belong. And I had family and friends that kind of went that route, you know, went that route where I was fortunate enough to play sports. And if anything, you know, my family and friends encouraged me to kind of stay out of the street life. So I, I stayed with sports, whereas a lot of Asian Americans in the 90s at that time to fit in kind of got involved into the street life. There were there were kids that were, were smart and got into academics and things like that um kind of the stereotypical uh, mo uh, uh what was it um was it model uh, minority model minority right exactly um but you know it was a cool thing i think for for a lot of us in the 90s to kind of get with these these asian street gangs asian street car gangs yeah you know uh, yeah. big thing you know and, and it's something that i actually want to take a closer look at and one of the shows that i worked on um several years ago, kind of dived into that a little bit when I kind of documented the uh, the murder of Dr. Hong Noor, 
um, you know, from uh, the the amazing actor who won the Oscar uh, in The Killing Fields. Um, you know, he was murdered by a street gang, a uh, Cambodian street gang of all things. And so it, I, I learned a lot from the people that I interviewed there, law enforcement, former gangsters. And, you know, for, you know, for not getting really too into it, it felt for me, at least growing up to it, growing up in that era, a place to fit in, you know. And so for me, sports was my outlet. And fortunately for me, I got to kind of like escape a little bit of that street life through through sports. Yeah, what a blessing. And and not only did you get to escape that street life, but you got to have opportunities later down the road that opened up this big sports world. Because, you know, I mean, let's face it, there's not a whole lot of Vietnamese people in sports. I mean, in professional sports, behind the camera, in front of the camera, it's just not a thing. And to see this happening uh, more more often now is such a beautiful thing. It is. It is. I mean, I remember, you know, having dreams of wanting to play football in college and in the pros. And there was a Vietnamese American named Dat Nguyen, you know, who uh, played for the Cowboys and the Texas A&M Aggies. And I could have swore that would have been me uh, if, if I was fortunate enough to get as big as he did. Uh, but he was, I mean, the one to this day, probably the one Vietnamese guy that made it uh, the uh, all one the way guy. to the pros and did a great job. I think he's still league yeah the one it's guy the yeah one guy. but he was a great inspiration and just seeing people like him um obviously Yao Ming and other Asian Americans do great in sports is uh you know great inspiration but behind the scenes yeah there wasn't much there wasn't many of us still isn't that many of us every once in a while you hear a name or you see a name but you know we don't connect enough you know it's a small fraternity of Asian American uh, male and female I mean mainly male I see some females here and there but not that many Asian American males kind of in my industry on the unscripted sports um, and even on the unscripted TV side. But, you know, I think there's obviously a cultural thing going on. You know, we're, you know, supposedly into academics and, you know, getting the grades and everything. But there's another side to all this, too, is just the physical stature of going into a pro sports like the NFL football. You have to be a big boy. You have to be a big son of a gun to get into that. And then not only do you have to be big, but you have to be super fast and super twitchy and the yeah. whole, you know, the the whole package, right? In order yeah. to compete at that level. Yeah. And and it starts young and in a lot of ways it's generational, I think. Yeah. You know, I mean I'm I'm five nine at best, you know, and and I made it as far as I did just because I was borderline crazy and <laughs> threw my body uh, into things that I probably shouldn't have and people that I shouldn't have. But yeah, I mean, it has a lot to do with it. I mean, at, at the, at my best, I would probably ran a four, nine, <laughs> a four, eight, which couldn't get you, uh, you know, sniffed at in, in collegiate sports. Um, and so, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know what that is. I mean, I think that's, you know, generational takes time. I'm trying to think, you know, there's a, there's amazing athletes like Taylor Rapp, you know, who's in the NFL right now, but a lot of them are, are half breeds. I yeah. like <laughs> That's controversial too, right? Yeah, well, we can't say that, right? Yeah, I mean, God bless him. God bless him. God bless Kyler Murray. God bless all these amazing athletes. Uh, you know, it's like my friend used to tell me, uh, the great Ken Wu, who's a cameraman. He's like, I can't be half Asian, even though he was half Asian, right? <laughs> He's like, it's like saying you're half pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. 
And you know, it, but the like the what is it? The Christian what Juzhang uh, over at UCLA? Juzhang, yeah, yeah. Those uh, like boys, Johnny and Christian Juzhang. I think yeah. one of them playing uh, in Vietnam. Yep. The other one's trying to still make it into the league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, half. You know, those guys are half Vietnamese. Hey, I'll take it. My kids are <laughs> my kids are half. You know, so 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 you know, the, to me and uh, to anyone that's going to be seeing them if they ever make it in anywhere in life. Uh, they'll be Vietnamese. <laughs> it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing when, you know, genetically we're a little bit shorter. We're not as, you know, gifted with the with the big muscles. And it's difficult. Well, I think in sports like MMA, we find a lot more Vietnamese. You know, yeah. that's where the, a big concentration of Vietnamese. Because, you know, it's divided by weight class. So I think there's like a fair, there's a fair entry point for, you know, Vietnamese people. Yeah, no. I mean... It's hard work, right? I mean, regardless of how big or small you are uh, or too fast you are, I mean, I've been privileged enough to hang out with some of the best of the best athletes on the planet. And then, and then you get the privilege of filming with Manny Pacquiao, and he defied all odds, you know? How did he separate himself from, you know, the rest of the Philippines, the rest of Southeast Asia, the rest of Asia? And I got to see it firsthand. You know, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you that. So you're you're around a lot of these elite elite athletes. What yeah. do you think separates the Kobe's and the Pacquiao's from other people? You know, I I've learned that they're a little manic. You know, they're a little manic. They're off. They're not like the rest of us. You know, you 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 can't. In my experience, you know, they're not your run of the mill person. You could go and have a, a cup of coffee with. You know, they're geared a different way. You know, in, I mean, in what but, way? It, well, Mayweather, Mayweather used to, you know, Mayweather used to famously say, you know, when I'm working, y'all sleeping or when y'all sleeping, I'm working. And he wasn't lying, you know, like, you know, he was nocturnal in a lot of ways and he would run at one, two, three in the morning for eight miles. You know, um, a lot of people, especially in boxing, they wake up early, you know, and train early in the morning and they do some hard work and nothing to, to not to take anything away from that. But Mayweather was geared differently where he was like, hey, I fight at like 9 p.m. You know, why am I waking up at 4 a.m. to train? And and he would just train into the night and he wouldn't drink. He wouldn't smoke. It looked like he party, but he really wasn't partying. You know, wow. it, it was it, 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 it was almost like uh, an image he put out to the to world. Trick them. Just to, to trick them in, in some ways. But he was working hard. He was training. I mean, you're talking about a, he's a couple years older than me. Uh, so you're when I was documenting him in his late 20s and uh, throughout his 30s, while he was older than some other people, he was working harder than them, doing 16-minute rounds, back-to-back -back sparring sessions, and 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 just you never saw anybody work harder. Pacquiao was very similar. Uh, Joe Calzaghe, championship boxer uh, from Wales, same thing. Jimmy Johnson, who I got to document in NASCAR, same thing. Ronda Rousey. Uh, you know, a lot of these athletes just were working while everyone else was sleeping. There, I mean, it, it, it's it's I wouldn't say it's that simple, but it's it's that you got to start with the hard work and and follow it up with without compromising, without compromising. Like like your fa your your family is going to take a hit, your friends are going to take a hit. Um, you know, the fun uh, that you think you're going to have uh, when you when you become a champion is definitely going to be put to the side. Uh, again, Mayweather had been a champion ever since he was 20. You know, how does someone stay a champion from 20 to borderline 50 years old now? Yeah. yeah. 
uh, the entire time, stay undefeated. It's hard work. It is now, hard work. Does that affect the way you raise your children? Because now you understand what it takes and do you push them a certain way or do you understand that that is a specific type of human being yeah. and you kind of like let it, I mean, how do you, how do you approach this? Yeah, great question. It's like a, so many people in my industry, right? Like we're the same, you know, uh, you know, people ask us, Hey, do, do you like document the crap out of like your kids dance recitals or uh, graduations? It's like, no, no, we shoot it on our iPhones. And if anything, it's probably not shot really well on your iPhone. <laughs> not to say that, uh, you know, I want to separate my personal life from my business life, but I do. And I've learned, and I think there's a lot of people like me in my industry. So with my kids, I don't push them as hard. I've learned actually from some of the best of the best. They, they were pushed by some early on, but the ones that really had it just had it. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, 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 at some point, their parents kind of gave up or they fired their parents or they fired their coaches. They were just going to run out there regardless of who was pushing them. So I've learned early on that, yes, it takes encouraging and, and providing the opportunities for the kids. Um, but when it comes to them actually running with it, you know, a lot of that's on them. And, and, and I'll give them all the opportunities in the world and I'll support them and I'll love them. But I won't push them to the point where it's like, you know, there's a show called Friday Night Tykes. Or, or, you know, everyone's heard of the term soccer moms and things like that. I haven't taken it there yet. Maybe I will, you know, if, if I had more time with the kids. But, you know, I, I've learned that you either have it or you don't. And I asked that question because I am curious about the Vietnamese culture, the diaspora in the U.S. and abroad in Europe and Australia. If we need to put our focus on raising our kids a certain way, guiding them the way our previous generations guided us to become doctors and lawyers and put that pressure on. But yeah. it probably doesn't work that way, right? Because in a free country like the US where you are expected to kind of like nurture your child a certain way, you can't really push him in that same way. And I think you just answered that by saying, you know, you got to really just create a, a safe environment for them to thrive in whatever they want to do. Yeah. I mean, or we're messing it all up. <laughs> you know, it's like our parents. Wow. What, what an amazing job they did making their way into a new country, uh, you know, under such difficult circumstances to raise gener our generation. You know, I'm a first generation Vietnamese America born right when we got here to America. And, um, not like the our parents consciously pushed me, my parents, in a certain way, but just through hard work and survival, you know, we saw it, right? We saw it. We said we had to make the best of the opportunity, and you hope to pass that along to our second generation as much as possible. Um, but because, you know, because we have more opportunities, um, you know, there's less of, I guess, a survival mode. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like we were in survival mode. I, I, I can't speak for you, Kenneth. And I think we chatted a little bit about it, but a lot of us Vietnamese American first generation have a similar upbringing yeah. where it was survival. It was like, you know, parents barely spoke English. You're one of few Asian kids at your school. You're just trying to make a name for yourself, which is goes back to the, why a lot of people got into those Asian gangs, right? Yeah. yeah. Find a place to fit in. Whereas this generation, much different. Still got to push them. We're still not that far off the boat. 
off the boat, you know, uh, and, and, and don't want to forget that. Uh, and, and, and hopefully what we're doing is right. Balancing between giving them opportunities, but at the same time, pushing them. Yeah. So how did you get your start in sports entertainment? Yeah, so I was a, a failed athlete. <laughs> so I, uh, I I thought I was gonna you know play football well into my college years and and you know hopefully beyond. That was my dream, right? I I saw names like there was a wide receiver at UCLA named Brian Nguyen. I was like, wow, there's a Vietnamese guy at UCLA back in the late '90s doing great things. Played in the Rose Bowl. There was a a, a Vietnamese wide receiver at the school that I went to, Cal State Northridge, named Duck. Duck Nguyen. So there was the idea I was going to play football and I could, I probably should have stuck with it, but then um, God in a lot of ways had different plans. Cal state Northridge, the, the team that I was uh, planning to play for got title nine, right? They got rid of the football program uh, for equal opportunities for females and got rid of the football program probably in 99 or 2000. So I was forced to either, you know, try to find another football program and, and 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 continue my dreams or figure something else out and at that time uh being in northridge you had access to the dodgers you had access to a thing called the football network before there was the the nfl network and i i did probably two or three internships uh one with the dodgers one with the football network one with the la arena avengers football team and then one was fox sports uh, which was just starting to get going in the late 90s in L.A. Brand new building uh, back over at Pico. Or, yeah, near Culver City, kind of closer to the Santa Monica area, um, Universal City, uh, no, C Century City. Uh, and uh, yeah, started interning at a program called Fox Sports. It was the highlight department, national sports report. Coolest job ever, right? You come and you log highlights, and I think the first highlight or one of the first highlights that I ever logged was the Women's uh, Soccer World Cup. Uh, this is the one where Brandy Chastain rips off her shirt after making a goal. And I'm like, hey, this is a pretty big deal. We should uh, highlight this. And and so I, I remember falling in love with sports, uh, you know, through my eyes as opposed to playing it and and and, and getting to learn really quickly from a lot of great mentors you know um in the highlight department and then i went over to a show called fox sports rewind fox sports going deep and they were just getting going and there was a lot of excitement in los angeles about like you know like what where's the west coast version of espn and i was right there at the beginning of it and and i'd say by the time i graduated college um you know, I you know I I got an offer to do a, a production assistant gig at a show called Beyond the Glory, which was amazing. Beyond the Glory is kind of like the behind the scenes, behind the music look at you know some of the best athletes. And so, uh, you know, a company that I worked with did like a hundred of them, and I I got I got to cut my teeth with some of the best documentary storytellers and you know producers and editors and cameramen, and so that's how I got my start. So. Let's take it back to when you get to Fox and you're doing the highlights, and this is the first intern, first job that you get, right? Yeah. A lot of young people are starting out in the world, whether it's you know music or or film yeah. or, or yeah. sports, and this whole idea of starting in the mailroom, starting in highlights, starting in positions where 
it's very nebulous and there's no form or shape to any of this. Yeah. It's a very important place in American society in these industries to start at these places because you don't know where you're going to be thrust into next, but right. you do a series of these and it builds your understanding of the industry that you're getting into. Did you know where you were headed or did you have any inkling of the direction or what you wanted to do with your life at that point? Yeah, you know, I knew it had like one of like three or four options. You in, in that world at the time, and it's still the case in Unscripted, you're either going to be a producer, uh, an editor, uh, a camera operator. Those are the, like the main three kind of jobs in that world of documentary storytelling at that time for what I saw. You know, uh, the people that actually made a decent amount of money, loved what they were doing, and actually were doing it for a while, older mentors at the time. And I chose producing. You know, I, I mean, editing was pretty uh, special, but I knew, you know, uh, as as important as the editor was, they weren't going to be out in the world as much. And I I kind of fancied myself as a social individual and wanted to see the world. And, and I got to see from these mentors of mine, they got to travel the world. They got to meet the coolest people. Mm -hmm. And, and 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 see some amazing places in the world and and i got to work actually the olympics early too the people that were doing the beyond the glory show some of them were working the olympics so they saw me early on they saw my potential and they were like let's hit the road and i wow. mean i got i got blessed pretty quickly in my career and started traveling uh pretty quickly and just again, got to see the coolest places in the world and the coolest stories and and some of the best people to work with, and let alone document. Wow, what a journey! Yeah, no, it's 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 amazing. So I yeah, I mean, not that I knew early on, but those were my options pretty quickly. Like that that door opens up when you get into the documentary sports world or a documentary world. You, let alone a show that had a hundred episodes, right? Uh, ranging from Kobe Bryant to De La Hoya to Mike Tyson. I mean, the best of the best. And you're a sports guy, could not get any better, right? Yeah. And you're you're allowed to kind of watch and prep and get into these worlds. Could not have a better, uh, you know, pool of content for me to dive into as a, as someone who was into sports, didn't know I was a storyteller at the time, but I knew I love sports and, and was spoiled, absolutely spoiled from the get go, uh, to dive into this world and, and being a sports guy, uh, guy, you know, every, you know, whether it was, uh, uh, horse racing or, you know, the Iditarod or boxing, mm -hmm. even though I didn't know much about the sport and I wasn't the biggest fan of that niche sport, learning about it was amazing yeah. and being able to be that in between between you know the people who knew everything about it and the masses was beautiful and then the the olympics come along and i got to do that for gymnastics and figure skating at the highest level with with some of the best storytellers in the world for nbc sports and introduce people like you know Nastia Liukin and Sh uh, Sean Johnson to the world like our job was to wow. take this obscure young athlete from china or russia even america and introduce them to you in a short period of time and what a blessing and privilege that was now throughout your years you've been around a lot of elite athletes what and who has left impressions in your mind or yeah. changed your life or altered the way you looked at or perceived life the biggest one that i always give credit to 
and it's a little unorthodox, uh, was Mayweather. Uh, you know, I remember day one meeting him in 2007 and it did go, it not going too well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just remember him just like checking me and he had already been with HBO probably for eight years, kind of like one of their main fighters. But we were starting this new show called 24-7, HBO 24-7. And they kind of rolled the dice with someone like me. They had heard about me from the Olympics and Floyd wasn't getting along with really any of the producers. And they kind of threw me in the uh, in the deep end. And I met him, and he, che- he checked me a little bit, and didn't give me full when, access. When you say he checked you, what does that mean? What like what like, did he do? He, he, you know, I remember being in the gym, nervous as heck, with the camera crew. He wasn't there; it was his gym. He shows up; it's a big deal, right? This guy did not, you know, I didn't know what a presence of a championship boxer was like back then. This boxing was new to me. And he comes in, my camera guy has lights up everywhere like it's a Nike commercial, <laughs> you know, and Floyd just, just starts ripping out all the lights, and and, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Wait, he and, starts ripping out all the lights? He starts ripping out, like, uh, you know, like the cords that are plugged into the wall. The literally, literally. Literally just plugging in. This is his gym. This is his gym. And I'm like, uh-oh, he's not happy about this. And he's like... Yo, man, this isn't your gym. And even though it wasn't really my fault, you know, I'm following the lead of the, my director of photography at the time. You know, I'm gonna take credit and take onus for it. And I remember, like, he even walked by me and like checked me with his shoulder, like just to show me my place. Like, this is not your domain. This is my domain. Like, I'm number one here. You're not number one. And I was like, okay, got it. And I just remember getting on the phone with HBO, going outside, going, hey, things aren't going too well. <laughs> you know, things aren't going too well. Lloyd's not happy, and they're laughing at the, uh, on the phone. It, it's like they know Floyd, right? And they do. They've been with him for years. They're like, hey, we knew this might be tough. Just hang in there. Um, he kind of has been like this with everybody. You know, fingers crossed. Good luck. It was one of those things. Like, wow. good luck. Brand new experimental show. Do what you do. They barely knew what I did. But they said, do what you do. And I just remember, you know, uh, documenting him and 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 and, and a lot of, you know, you know, uh, successes and failures. And, you know, uh, you try things, some things don't work. You're shooting 24 seven, literally. And then you ultimately the show, the technology allowed us to turn things around so quickly. This is the first time you can air a show of that caliber documentary style. Um, and, uh, and have it concurrently, you know, edit it and, and continue producing while watching with the talent. So I'm about to watch episode one with Floyd and, and this guy, I, I don't know if he's going to kill me or he's gonna love the show. A lot of things. He taught me, you know, even in this unscripted world, to be prepared, you know, even though I had come up through horse racing, gymnastics, figure skating, figure skating, we don't get too many tries. You got to be ready and you got to be cinematic and you got to be on your game. Okay. All right. Just pick it up from there. You want me to pick it up from right, right, yeah. right around there? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, Floyd Mayweather taught me early on, you know, uh, that, you know, we're there for them. They're not there for us, you know, and to be ready at all times. Because, you know, he, when he pulled out the lights and checked me, he reminded me that it's like, hey, you, you're documenting me. And this is, he, I remember what he said was, he's like, 
this is this isn't fake. You know, this is real life. Either you get it or you don't, and that's on you. And so I learned really quickly, and my team that I was with had to learn really quickly to adapt. You know, sometimes like we want that perfect shot, or to have them walk through the door yeah. a second time, or you know, to 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 get really cinematic with things. And what we learned from Floyd, it was like. You either get it or you don't. And if you get it, if you work really hard, if you prepare for it, if you plan it out, you kind of get, you know, to certain places beforehand, you kind of map things out. Um, it's going to be really authentic and it's going to be really good. And 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 uh, one of my uh, great mentors and business partners, uh, Todd Craig's, you know, he always says he's a great editor, right? He's a, a, one of the best editors in the game. Um, he always says uh, the footage doesn't lie. And with Floyd Mayweather, the footage never lied. You know, it was he, he was that authentic and that good. And he actually gave us too much material to work with to where like, you know, 24 seven was only like a 22, 25 minute show. And it was half him and half this other guy. And I just remember just praying, say one day, you know, I'll get to document you more than, uh, you know, 20 minutes, you know, even though we were with him for a month, if not longer. And I got that opportunity when uh, he actually was heading to prison. So I was able to convince him and, and to let us document him. Uh, and I did a, a documentary called 30 Days in May, where, you know, you documented the richest athlete on the planet going to prison, which was really cool. It's an amazing opportunity that you've been given. What What do you think makes people call you up and say, hey, Jackson, like, I got this and I want you to do it? You know, I think, I'm not going to lie, I leaned into um, my diverse background, you know, me being, a, you know, going full circle to how, how we started this whole conversation. Me being a Vietnamese American, I think has something to do with it. I think them knowing uh, uh, that I maybe came up through similar uh, difficulties and obstacles, overcoming obstacles uh, with a lot of athletes, especially, right? Most athletes have overcome something difficult. They fought to get out of a certain neighborhood. Uh, they fought to uh, prove others wrong. Uh, and I think, you know, being Vietnamese American, just like you and I, and a lot of people listening to this, you know, we've overcome something or, or our parents have. And I think a lot of these athletes that I've had the privilege of working with saw that in me. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think, I think there's, a, there's, a, <laughs> Floyd used to always say this real recognize real, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, they 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 know you've been through something. They know you ha you have a story to tell, and they know you can relate. Um, and in my world, you know, I, and I do a lot of I do a lot of social injustice and social justice programming as well. I've been blessed to be given that opportunity by BET. Um, you know, being a minority that have that 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 came up through difficult situations or understands what it's like coming up through di uh, difficult situations has been the big door opener for me. Yeah. You uh, came up when the UFC was starting, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you were cool. there from, from the beginning. I mean, I think you had a, a it sounds like, a, like an 11-year contract or something with them. You were oh, well, I mean, I wasn't, that wasn't a kind of permalance in some ways, they call it. But actually, so there was... There was the beginning of the UFC, which was back in the early 90s, right? That was formed. And that's when you remember watching Hoist yeah. Gracie and the different uh, uh, martial arts facing each other. And sometimes, and you know, the first, I remember the first UFC, Roy Hoist Gracie had like three or four fights or something like that. So there was that version of the UFC. And then later, the, 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 the next 
era of the UFC was probably in the early 2000s uh, when Dana White and the Fertitta brothers took over. Okay, that's what I yeah wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. So what is it in the first iteration of the UFC versus the second iteration of Dana White? And is there storytelling mechanisms that sort of made the second iteration of the UFC pop? Oh, yeah. Oh and, yeah, you know, absolutely. That, you were you were part of it all. I think in the second iteration, what what is it in the storytelling or in the branding? What is it that made it yeah. go from basically a dead business to a yeah. multi billion dollar business today? Yeah, not not gonna take credit for any of that right. at first. At first, and I'll tell you what happened because we actually did. It was actually the last Beyond the Glory episode that we did was on the UFC. This is two thousand five or two thousand six. And it was an amazing story that a friend of mine produced. Um, and we learned a lot about the UFC. And a lot of it goes back to uh, the show, The Ultimate Fighter. So so basically, you know, Dana White had 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 convinced his dear friends, the Fertitta brothers, to invest in this company and buy it. And they bought it. And then they lost a ton of money. And they were about to lose all the money. And then Dana convinced uh, the Fertitta brothers to invest even more, which is in the tune of like 40 or 50 plus million dollars more. And I think they were down to their last dime again. Uh, And then they created the ultimate fighter, which was a time buy on spike TV. They actually had to pay to air this thing. And that's when it caught fire. And, and then Stephen Bonner, rest in peace uh, and and, uh, Forrest Griffin fought. And I think that was the big fight that ignited the popularity of the UFC. And then that's when I came in. So, so, so I, I got lucky enough after the 24 seven series for HBO to where the UFC was paying attention and was like, Hey, we got to do something like this. And so I worked closely with them for a show called UFC countdown. And then we did a first couple uh, UFC prime times um, guy named Jason Hare, who actually worked on 24 seven actually worked with us to create UFC primetime with BJ Penn and George St. Pierre. Uh, and then we started doing kind of like the 24 seven behind the scenes, look at the UFC fighters getting ready for a big fight. And then I probably worked for the UFC with the UFC between 2008. And, you know, I still work with the UFC. Mm. You know? So, so uh, got to meet everyone from Liddell Ortiz to Anderson Silva, spent a m- several months in Hawaii with BJ Penn, um, you know, it, it was just really cool. I would say like probably the m- most formative years of the UFC, you know, I got to kind of have a first row seat uh, at it. Yeah. What, what do you think was the magic, you know, between the first iteration and the second iteration? What what made it blow up? Well, you know, they capitalized off of the technology and in, in, in television, right? Well, the ultimate fighter can't take anything away from that. I think, I mean, is it still on? It might still be on. So the ultimate fighter fighter had a lot to do with it. And what I mean by the technology is like, you know, back in the day, you know, you'd have to like to to get really cinematic stuff. You would film it. You'd take it to Telecine. You'd get it back a week later. You'd get it into the edit in a different form format and edit it. And, and, And it was quite the process of getting something really cinematic out to the masses, you know, and I learned that through working with people at the Olympics. And then all of a sudden, you know, Panasonic came along and introduced us to this camera called Veracam. 
And it allowed us to like, I remember being at, you know, in the edit bay in Athens uh, for the 2004 Olympics and Panasonic coming in with this camera in this converter box. And they showed us that we can convert this media into high speed, which is slow motion. And it will just be gorgeous. And we were looking at it real time, turning around this footage within minutes. And we, we knew at that point, oh, this is going to change the game. Right. And, and that's actually the, the technology that we use for 24 seven, which allowed for it to be as beautiful and cinematic as it was uh, and, and, and quickly turn that around. And so I think that coupled with iconic athletes, right? UFC jumped in at the right time. And one of my mentors, David Michaels, the great Dave Michaels, he's a uh, one of the best directors in sports history. He taught me every sport lives and dies off iconic athletes. You know, and and in a, in a lot of ways, every sport has been dying for decades. Boxing, they always say boxing's dying, been yeah. dying for a hundred of years. You know, uh, UFC, gymnastics, figure skating, horse racing, you name it, until an iconic athlete comes out, right? And, until a Mayweather comes out, Pacquiao mm-hmm. comes out, uh, Michelle Kwan, you know, like top time for some of these sports where there aren't these big names, right. Conor McGregor, right? UFC. So you need an iconic athlete and, and you need to capitalize off of it at the right time with the technology that's given to you. Uh, right now, there's so much great technology, you know, kids could turn around a show in minutes, you know? So, so it really comes down to what sport it is, who are the iconic athletes and are the sports uh, services and, and and TV companies jumping on them, and and they and they they, they do now. Everyone has an everyone has their own version of twenty four seven these days, and now there's there might be too much content out there. Yeah, this is all met- very metaphorical for life. Almost, uh, it's an analogy, sort of like when I think about what you're saying. It's like, you know, these industries uh, such as music or film in, in Vietnam or you know the Vietnamese diaspora. You need to have the driver that the iconic athlete, you know, yeah. that drives that industry into the stratosphere, right? You just yeah. you have to have that that unique actor or that unique singer from Vietnam or Vietnamese diaspora, that shining star. So yeah. it's almost like we can't even calculate when this is gonna happen. You can't. You can't. You just gotta kind of feel it in in terms of knowing. Is it you know you look what happened with the uh, Korean content over the yeah. past five, 10 years? I mean, BTS has something to do with it, right? Big- uh and, and those uh, even though I should know their names, right? The, the directors that won the Oscars for Parasite and, and and these amazing filmmakers, you know, it's like they have had a hell of a run and they've capitalized off of that run. Um, what's that new show on Netflix? <laughs> that, 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 Squid like, Games. Cool games right yeah yeah. So, so yeah so the korea the, the what's happening with the korean um content makers uh is a great example capitalizing off of the talent that is capturing the world's attention yeah and they've been at it for over 30 years you know oh, yeah. their government their people everything infrastructurally has yeah. been aimed at you know getting this right and so they're breeding the the athletes or they're breeding the talent to get sh- camera ready so when the time comes they're all ready for it oh yeah yeah you know i just thought about it it's like remember gangnam style yeah <laughs> yeah 10 years ago yeah 
Like who who knew it was actually the foundation for things like BTS, you know? Who would have known? That's yeah. some crazy shit. Because when you looked at it, it was like such a silly video. You're like, this is out of control. This is like, it's almost cringy, but you want to keep looking at it. But you're right. It laid the foundation for us to kind of like, it's wide open. Like, oh, come and sit with us to sort of enjoy this kind of quirkiness. But we're going to bring you much more soon. We had no idea. Yeah, you know, and, and it makes you think about, you know, the Oscar run this past year with everything, everywhere. And mm -hmm. I'm saying it all wrong, but, you know, I think you and know I did it all wrong. Like I said, I mean, Michelle Yeoh and them, they've been at it for 30 plus years, yeah. right? Yeah. It's hard work, you know, you know, while, while we're all asleep and they're working, <laughs> you know, and the same thing goes with like uh, the Vietnamese, you know, uh, media, right? Like. You got to capitalize it where you can. And that's what you, you're doing. Amazing job. Johnny's doing an amazing job. And God bless you guys for doing this. And and hopefully what you guys are doing is laying the foundation for, you know, the Vietnamese to have a run, hopefully not too far in the future. Yeah. I mean, and even if it's far in the future, like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, it, 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 this is a beautiful thing to even witness from the ground floor. You're getting yeah. into feature films, right? I mean, yeah. it's funny when I say you're getting into it, but i know that you've been into it for like at least a decade but it you know it takes time to develop and and tell me about that journey yeah no so we have one film uh that's in edit right now and it's directed by uh lee daniels produced by tucker tooley um i mean glenn close is in it you know uh monique's in it uh, uh you know uh Escapes my mind right now. Wait, 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 wait! I, I, you just said something. So wait, Lee Daniels directed, and Monique is in it. I thought, I thought they had some feud, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that feud has ended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> ho ho hopefully with this film. Hopefully with this film. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a movie that I came across uh, on the unscripted side. You know, we were going to make a documentary out of it. It's a real life demon possession. You know, a family went through some horrible situations in Gary, Indiana. Um, and a mother lost her children to the government and, uh, you know, and then there were documentation of one of her kids walking up the wall at the hospital's office. And yeah, you, you Google it, you'll, you, you might find it hard to, uh, hard to sleep tonight. <laughs> it's, uh, wait, wait, wait. how did you, so how did you get a hold of this project and what, what, what was your position in this project? Yeah, well, you know, a friend of mine, um, reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, my uh my cousin's uh, having issues with his kids you know like it's all over the news and the government took the kids from her their mother and he's like just google it you know latoya ammons you know latoya ammons a-m-m-o-n-s let me know if you're interested i'm like what do you want me to tell a documentary you want me to get the news outlets involved he's like he, you know he didn't know what to do so he reached out to me and uh and i looked into it and me and my partner were like wow what a story i mean demonic possession you know on one end we were like do you stay the heck away from this completely my which my wife would have preferred at the time um because she's very spiritual and was very spiritual and i've become very spiritual since then uh but my partner and i were like all right well let's make a movie you know let's 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 at the very least do a documentary and i think in the process of trying to acquire the rights to get the documentary we also got the movie. You know, there was many people that were, many studios that were actually trying to get the rights to this thing. It was 
uh, a pretty hot property in 2011, 2012. Um, and so you say we're trying to acquire the rights to it from who by who, like who owned, quote unquote, I mean, the the family, the, the, the mother and the family owned the rights, you know, it's like, it was like a modern day, um, yeah, exorcist, uh, there's another series. There was another franchise, not The Exorcist. Why am I having a tough time thinking about it in the Northeast in Connecticut? Um, but you know, it was a modern day, you know, exorcist slash horror story. Uh, and the mom trusted me. The mom was, who was being reached out to by big studios kind of didn't like what she was hearing, didn't trust them, and for some reason trusted me. And I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, right? Like uh, she she thought that she could trust her project in my hands and and whether it become a documentary or a feature film, I would help get it there in the long run. And so that embarked, you know, I embarked on a a journey that changed my entire life, you know, uh, changed my faith changed the course of my family's uh, history. Um, it changed, you know, uh, it changed me in so many ways for the positive. And even if the movie was never going to get made, it changed my life. Just learning about it and, and diving into it and understanding what they went through uh, or trying to understand what they went through and, and, and working with the studios. And, and you know, one of the studios went under only for us to like, work really hard to get it extracted from one studio and move it to another studio. I mean, just uh, the Hollywood game, right? And and here we are eesh, 10 years later, almost nine, 10 years later, and it's still being uh, produced and, and worked on. And hopefully it, it releases next April uh, on Netflix. It's, it's uh, the, the working title is called The Deliverance. So, so it's, yeah. it's all in the can, like you guys are done shooting it? It's done shooting. They might do a, additional pickups, but in the most part, it's all in the can. And now it's kind of going through uh, the edit process. And uh, Lee Lee Daniels is doing his thing. You know, we 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 fought really hard to keep Lee Daniels on the project. Really thought he was the right person to be a producer yeah. director on it uh, when his time was available. And uh, you know, when he made himself available after Billy Holiday to work on this one, I think he's worked on a Sammy Davis Jr. as well, a project for Hulu. Um, we were blessed to have him jump onto this. Now, when you say it changed your life, yeah. you didn't believe in this spiritual realm before. Yeah. And I mean, I believe, but I, you know, I didn't really dip my toe in too much. You know, I grew up as a Buddhist, uh, traditional Buddhist, uh, raised as a Buddhist. My, my grandmother's a monk, uh, dad's pretty hardcore Buddhist, um, but my mom, you know, allowed me to kind of explore, you know, as I grew up and, but, you know, I wasn't really into choosing a, a certain lane, you know, and my wife, who's been uh Christian, uh, you know, she was born and raised Catholic, but she got saved as a Christian, probably in her early twenties was always pushing, not pushing, it was always there for me when I needed her, but understood that I struggled with my faith and struggled with spirituality and religion. And so this movie, it's crazy because you you go after a project to make money off of the devil in so many ways, right? Yeah. Only to walk away finding God, you know, in the process. And I think, I you know, that's my testimony, right? My testimony is that, you know, I I, I was looking to make money off of a movie or at least 
you know, get a story out there, you know, um, and, and the process through the research, uh, through my family getting behind me. Cause my wife was the type of person who was like, listen, you can't, you can't kick the hornet's nest. You can't jump into demonic possession, not do the research and come home with two young kids, you know? And so I have this funny story that I say where my wife literally for months, definitely weeks would not let me into the house unless I read certain passages from the Bible. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. She'd, she'd watch me from the window because she knew I was talking to the family, talking to exorcists, talking to people that I we needed to kind of uh, work with to produce this movie. And she's like, you can't just bring this stuff home, you know? And she would have, you know, pastors praying for me and, and, and Bible studies and this. And I was the a-hole, you know, on the couch, you know, uh, kind of uh, trying to avoid all of it, only to kind of only to be the kind of succumb to it. And in a lot of ways, that's how I ended up getting the property, you know, because when I met with Latoya and her spiritual advisor, um, so many of these things that my wife was instilling in me through these passages in the Bible, through these pastors, through these Bible studies were now coming out of me, you know, now, as a researcher, it was all coming in. And all of a sudden it was coming out of me uh, to LaToya, to these people, to these studios. And the next thing you know, you start living it. And, and, you know, for me as a documentarian, as a producer, like I love researching uh, everything about a person. Like if I were to do a documentary on you, Kenneth, I probably would know everything about you. But when I talk to you and I put you on camera, not like you act like you know nothing, but you pull it out of you, you yeah. know? And and so I did that with this project. And uh, in the process, you know, I became a Christian, you know, in the process, I became a Christian. My faith has, has grown uh, and it's been a big part of my family life um, and in my work life in a lot of ways, you know, like uh, I do a true crime show called American Gangster for BET. And a lot of times, you know, these shows, you know, um, you learn from these people, these amazing people, especially a- athletes as well, outside of true crime. You know, um, that you the, their faith is so strong. Yeah. You know? like like whether it's to get to the, the pinnacle of sports or whether it's to get out of a bad situation, you you learn about faith, and it's hard to understand and explain that unless you live through it yourself. And so, I think as a storyteller, I've been blessed by kind of going through it myself. You know, and with my family. But what a, what is it about that journey? What did you see? that made you you know what i mean i'm 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 curious about cuz i'm a man of a different type of faith i'm agnostic yeah. i believe there's got to be something out there right something that's yeah. intelligently yeah. has designed this place yeah but i don't know what kind of controls and what kind of influence it really has over us and you know i i i don't i i just haven't spent the time the way you do but whenever i meet people who are my age yeah and who didn't grow up with the spiritual background that I grew up heavy Catholic. Yeah. And so all of that turns me off and I should, I'm learning to absolve it. I'm learning to, to relinquish that sort of control over the way I, I see the world. I'm, I'm trying to be more open-minded. Right. But uh, when I run across people like you, it, it makes me question what exactly happened that you <laughs> saw with your, your feelings that rocked your world to change the trajectory of your spiritual life 
You know, for me, it's hard to pinpoint one thing. It's more of a collection, uh, a, a, a collective of things that happened over the past decade, from little to big to small to work to personal, you know, and what I've learned, especially with the young kids, you know, my kids are now 12 and nine, but, you know, over the past decade, obviously, you know, from zero to where they are now, that foundation, you know, when things are tough, having that community with my own family, let alone a real community, whether it's a school they go to, or whether it's a church they go to, or whether it's their friends, you know, I've learned the importance of community. I've learned the importance of community through my own experiences. I've learned the importance of community through sports and documenting these athletes. It takes a, a village to raise uh, an individual, um, whether it takes a community to rescue somebody. The, I had a lot of negative things to say about, you know, religion for years and, you know, and, and at my, my weak points, I I can still find those things to say bad about them. But what I have learned is that community is so important. And, and, and is that, is that less Christianity and more about community? Maybe. Um, But I think there's something to be said about having that um, common ground together as a community to lean on when times are tough. Times are always tough, right? Like whether it's COVID, whether you've lost a loved one, whether you're going through financial issues, uh, you name it, uh, times are tough. And when you have that community, let alone with your family, when you get to pray together uh, through tough times and them understanding that you're not always going to be perfect and to have someone above me uh, to lean on was the best gift that I could ever learn to provide them. Uh, And so I think without one specific thing happening, it was a lot of things. And I don't want to kind of go into the the laundry list of problems that we all have as individuals, but I learned through the process that that sense of comfort and community is the greatest gift that I've been given because I travel a lot for work. I travel a ton for work. I'm always around the world. I didn't think about that before I had kids, you know, but now I, uh, now I still do that. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times, especially when I'm, during my week moments, who's taking care of my kids when I'm not there, who can take care of my kids when I'm not there. Yes. My wife is there, but sometimes she's not there. They're at school or things that happen and you watch the news and there's horrible things that happen all the time. And I'd love to believe that there's something or someone watching over my children when I'm not there. And it brings me great comfort, you know, uh, that that's made me a believer. That's one of the many things uh, uh, that's helped make me a believer. Now, let me connect this. The framework of Christianity and demonic existence, right? Because if we come from a Muslim background or Buddhist background, some Eastern tradition, and we see things in its own kind of, we 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 experience things in its own sphere right? right if it's a if if we're experiencing demonic possession in vietnam it's it's under a different sort of like it's under a different structure we 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 perceive things differently so because we're in america and we're under the christian sort of lens that we see demonic uh ex trying to um exercise de- demons and being a Buddhist all of your life, did did any of this sort of like structural, 
You, you, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm getting at this sort of like the way I we- I, get, I think I get you because I, I, I give you an example. The My, lens of how we're seeing it is like depending on where we come from, from a <laughs> spiritual religious background, right? So how does so that, true. how did it come Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it jacks me. It jacked me up. It still jacks me up. Like, I'll give you an example. Like my mom, you know, attends this um, spiritual church. She's still Buddhist and in Orange County, you know, and, and they go to these things. And I, I went with my wife once who's Catholic Christian most of her life. And we went and they had, uh, they celebrate uh, Tet, right? And, uh, and we're all there and there's a God of money. There's a God of money. There's someone who gets possessed in the crowd and starts walking around and handing off money. And growing up, I remember seeing that and going, oh, it's normal, it's Vietnamese, you know, like yeah. that's a thing. <laughs> Seeing it from my wife's lens was comical at first. But then obviously you think about it. Like my wife was watching going, what is this? Oh, honey, yeah, the, the, the individual got possessed by someone called the God of money and they're passing around. She's like, what do you mean he got possessed or she got possessed? You know, and I started seeing it from her lens of like, is that good? Is that is that is like is like well in our Vietnamese culture, at least what we're celebrating, yeah, it's good. He'll snap out of it. It could be all fake, but and 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 I I mean I and then I started understanding it from not only her lens, but from like the Christian lens and going, you know, is it good to lose control to a a spirit? You know, and and, and if and if if that's real. Well, shit, how many of them are there, <laughs> you know, and are there bad ones, you know, uh, let alone the good guy that's giving out money. And, and is that good? You know, uh, and so you start thinking about those things and it's a very cultural. Yes. Right. Kenneth, like we grow up in this and it's very normal and being possessed or being embodied by other spirits was kind of a normal thing right. in our tradition. If anything, we encouraged it. If anything, we prayed for it. We got the incense. We got on our knees, and we kind of welcomed it. And we fed our de- we fed our spirits. I'm calling them demons. We fed our ancestors. As I've as I've grown to look at it better through the lens, uh, at least my family, and not to say this is right or wrong. I'm talking I'm talking about like my current family versus my the the family I was raised in. This was the the what the one that I'm with right now. What I'm practicing now, not to say it's healthier, but I could understand it more, and at least the community around me can understand it more and encourage it and get behind it. When with Buddhism and and Vietnamese Buddhism, for me, there were small pockets of communities. You had to kind of go find them, and everything, every one of them were different. Not to say that Christianity is any different, because Christianity has you know Jehovah Witnesses and, and Mormons and, and a lot of different. Uh, different, uh, you know, obviously religions at the same time, denominations and Buddhism as well. But it was so much harder as a kid uh, being a Buddhist, figuring out, well, are those Korean Buddhists the same as us? Are those yeah. Chinese Buddhists the same as us? Are the, the, the Laotians? And, and and the parents had a tough time explaining it to me. Uh, and we would do these chants. You know, I don't know if you still practice Buddhism, but a lot of chanting. Didn't understand what we were saying, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And, and definitely now that looking back at it, it definitely spooks me out to uh, to see people get possessed, R- regardless if it's the God of money giving me money or someone yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like, I think, a long way of answering your question. Yes, it's very cultural. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what are you most comfortable with you with your, your family? Like if you are in a community 
that can explain to you and your kids the importance of this faith and they rally behind you when times are tough and understand how to raise your kids when Kenneth isn't there and you trust the way they raise your kids or what they're saying to your kids, then that's a blessing. So I, 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 I'm not the type to want to choose whether Christianity is better than Buddhism or, or, or any other religion, but I've learned in my surroundings and, and kind of what I've been brought up in the stories that I've been telling that there's this common ground that's really opened a lot of doors for me and my family and that I want to keep watering, you know, and encouraging and, and, and seeing the growth. I mean, there's like 90% of athletes, if not more, are Christian. Not to say that that's the right way to go. Right. You know, uh, a lot of these stories that I tell, uh, and, and when, when faith is involved, there's Christian tones. I mean, shit. This is that joke, right? I forgot what comedian said it. It's it's 2023, right? 2023 since when? Anybody in the world can answer that question, right? Even if you're an atheist or an agnostic. So I think even if you're in the depths of the jungle, you know, in uh, in Southeast Asia, you're going to ask yourself at one point what year it is and, and, and maybe ask that question of why, you know? Well, why is it I'll go back to you know, the birth of Jesus or the death of Jesus. So that, that that's my testimony. It's not the right answer. And, and, and hopefully, or I don't think it's a wrong answer either, but that's kind of how I came to it and, and how I find value in it with my family and my storytelling. Yeah, it's fair game. And I think that faith has a lot to do with excelling, whether it's sports or politics or, you know, the, the West has this really ingrained sense of, you know, I mean, you talk about manifest destiny and probably not a good word to use in this context, but the belief in this, you know, uh, invisible hand and faith really drives the narrative that we have this infrastructure in our mind to keep pushing forward, pushing forward because there's this unseen, you know, divinity. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like when, when you run out of it, answers you know i i've learned to, to lean on faith and hope you know i mean i don't know if you know you, you've gone through gone through hopefully you don't have to go through difficulties that i i've seen and heard others go through but sometimes you don't have the answers you know sometimes you don't have the answers when you're dealing with a loved one a parent yeah going through difficult times and i love the idea that there's a community of people with me that are supporting me that are going to be there for me, regardless of what happens, you know? And I think, I think Buddhism is the same, you know, I, I just, for some reason that lane kept getting thinner and thinner. And, and, and that probably has a lot to do with not me, not going down that path. Right. Right. I mean, I could have, my grandma was a monk, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know? Oh, so, yeah. so it, 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 that was God's plan. And, you know, I wonder, you know, it's funny that you say that because like, I wonder in the East, do they not, dive into it as much you know you would think they do because there's you know so many monks and religion is a big deal you know uh, i know in, in in asia but i don't think the eastern philosophies are thinking forward right mm. it's it's not thinking time-wise what's in advance the way we in the west think of manifest destiny like go get the the future go approach the future i think with buddhist philosophy it's more dealing with suffering with the present moment it's always talking about the present moment 
And I think with uh, Western philosophy, Western ideals and Christianity talks more about um, structuring your life so you can live something that moves the train forward. Uh, I think it's very diff diff different. I I'm, I'm thinking in real time right now, I could be way off. Uh, people could probably be, I'd, I'd love to hear this uh, debate, um, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's special. I think you're right. And I think that's something that makes us special, right? In some ways, you know, with the, you know, being from the East, living in the West, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 both and appreciating both those worlds, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's both important. Now, with uh, the deliverance, when do you think that that's coming out? So I'm told it's coming out April of 2023. So wait, wait, that's right now, April 2023. April 2024. Yeah, yeah, a year from April twenty twenty, like a year from now. years already. Sorry, yeah, April twenty twenty four. I mean, the scripted game, in my experience, wow, it takes a while. <laughs> yeah. and I'm told from uh, my producing partner Tucker Tooley that that uh, this was a quick one. <laughs> uh, he did. He also did the fighter uh, and a couple other amazing wow. movies. He's done like you know over fifty plus, if not a hundred movies, and uh, it sounds like it takes time. And uh, in my experience, it does. Uh, and you know, I'm definitely more of an unscripted guy just because I, I, I like to move a little quicker. Uh, but if but if one of our my properties that I work on or, or or get the privilege to work on becomes a scripted property, I think that's where my lane is, right? Like like I'm all about scripted properties that come from a foundation yeah. of reality. Yeah. And I think uh you know the deliverance is all in the can and it's just being edited and you know you need pickups and you know but it's basically going to happen it's basically going to see the light of day at this point right yeah yeah i hope <laughs> i mean yeah i mean netflix spent like 75 plus million dollars on it so it's a big deal it's a pretty big deal you know especially yeah. in the horror in the horror market right um where you know there's these movies that uh, the Blumhouse movies that you know are a million yeah. to ten million to twenty million maybe that do extremely well. Yeah, here you, here you got a seventy-five plus million dollar movie. Quite the investment from Netflix to believe in the project, to believe in Lee Daniels, believe into believe in the cast. So so hopefully it does what we all intended it to do. Right. The the goal when I spoke to Latoya Ammons nearly ten years ago was to get her story out to the masses and i think uh we're in the process of doing that you know there's not very few people in the world that don't know what netflix is yeah but if you if you look at the if you look at the the formula right you talk about blumhouse 10 million 20 million dollar formula of uh you know of horror films that make uh, a lot of money back right. this is not that if you think about it right because they they yeah. put 75 million which is you know, it's exponentially more than the 20 million. It's, you know, three times, four times more than the average uh, horror. So, and, you know, you have big names like Lee Daniels, Monique. And uh, so it's different. So there, there's a different, in my, in my bones, I'm, I'm feeling like there's a different messaging with this story. It really is. It's God bless Netflix. Cause we were talking about 10, 20 million for years. Yeah. Uh, and even with Lee Daniels attached, I think he pushed for it to kind of have more relevance, more star power, which is how he was able to get uh, that 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 the tune of seventy five million. Uh, but yeah, I mean, great point, Kenneth. Like, like I think they're all seeing, and we hopefully we all see something different with this project. I mean, 
you know, Lee has this amazing story uh, where he says Oprah kind of begged him not to do it. You know, Why? I, I think this is Lee's first horror film. Uh, right. Uh, for uh, faith based in some, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, Lee said Oprah begged him not to do it because it, it, you know, uh, I don't know why, but it was maybe something like, you know, be careful what you jump into, be careful of kicking the hornet's nest basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he kind of disregarded her advice and dove in head first. And a lot of the filmmakers that we surrounded ourselves with, with the producers, were, were really doing this for the first time, you know. And so I think that's the exciting part. We're not your traditional horror filmmakers. If anything, you got documentarians, you got amazing storytellers. Lee's done amazing work in this lane, uh, you know, with movies like Precious and 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 and, and Monsters Ball, which he produces well. Uh, and so I think we're seeing it as something different than just a horror film. You know, we're, we're seeing it as something that hopefully changes people's lives when they watch it, you know? Uh, and so that was the goal. And so I think Netflix getting behind it uh, with uh, at the tune of 75 plus million is part of that as well. So we're, we're all hoping it's something special and different beyond just your typical horror film. Yeah, it sounds like it. I hope, you know, April 2024 is another year from here. Hopefully we'll get you back on in March and, you know, we'll talk about the next phase and the release of it. Uh, just like a, a Tourist Guide to Love is coming out uh, April 21st. It's uh, shot entirely in Vietnam and, you know, it has a... Vietnamese uh, lead, male lead, and it's Netflix. So, you know, we have all the filmmakers and Rachel Lee Cook coming on and the, the screenwriter was Vietnamese and the lead actor was Vietnamese have all come on to the podcast. So hopefully when the time comes for the deliverance to come out, you know, we'll have you back on and uh, back in March 2024 or something like that. Oh man, that'd be amazing! Can't promise I'll get Lee Daniels and Glenn Glenn close on though. <laughs> that would be that would be great. If even if it's just you to to talk oh. about you know from today till then so we got like eleven months, and I would love to hear what has happened. Uh, you know, up leading from you know twenty twenty three April to April twenty twenty four, and what has happened and transformed the storyline or whatever. You know, I would love to hear about it. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it, Kenneth. And thank you so much for putting this together and all the amazing work that you're doing to, 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 to spread the word of us, you know, in this uh, industry. And, 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 and you're doing this, you're doing uh, beyond this industry. You're just doing, you know, people within the Vietnamese American community that are just doing amazing things. So yeah, shout out to Johnny over at VidQ Media for the introduction. Thank you so much, Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. God bless you for that. Congratulations. Thank you. It's it's really my honor, my a privilege uh, to to be able to serve in this way. No, of course. Can't have enough of it, man. Thanks, Kenneth. Thanks again, Jackson. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Appreciate it, brother. Talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.